Good morning. Welcome to Northern Hills Bible Chapel. I'm looking down. I want to look out here in a second, but uh, I've got to find Ezekiel where we're starting. So I'll just say if you are visiting with us this Sunday morning this, at this time, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, we're going to be looking in the book of Ezekiel today, and there's, um, we're going to cover all 48 chapters in 42 minutes. No, we're not. Not even close. Um, the task was to talk about the Old Testament character as I remember hearing it. And I want to do that. Um, we'll get started in just a minute. So it's amazing, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, but as we lead up to your time to speak, it's amazing how many things God. The, the, I find that the Lord fires at you. Um, one from the text, and two from people around you, and three from what you observe, what you watch. One for me has been glorify. And then here, Brother Mickey starts with that song, Glorify your name in all the earth. And so I asked Stephanie on the way as she was driving us to church, because I wanted a little time to review my notes. Um, I said, honey, what does glorify mean to you? And, um, you know, she thought of the word awesome. You know, it's like when we know what the meanings of words are, but when we're asked to define them, it's like, oh, give me a second. got to put it in order. And, uh, oh, my word, because I said that little tidbit, I forgot what she actually said, but it was one of the things that I think... It was one of the definitions of glory that we would all kind of have. Um, it'll probably come back to me midway through, but it, it was like, oh, yeah, that's what I would think glory is, glorify. You know, just uh, kind of a meeting of God's pro- pro- projection of brilliance, you know. And I said, would you be interested to know that the Hebrew meaning for the word glory is heavy, to make heavy, to be weighted? And when we look at this book in Ezekiel and so many of the minor prophets, it's amazing to see that the mission was to not just amplify, but to make heavy God's name in his presence. As we look in this first part of Ezekiel, we're going to see that God takes his glory and his holiness very seriously. And I tell you, I, I, I wish I was a guy like so many brothers here I know that have this stuff all basically ironed out six months prior to the time they have to speak, and then they fine-tune and tweak as they go along. For me, I'll be honest, I, I don't know if it's just that I, my time management isn't 100% accurate or, or I procrastinate a little bit, but as I get closer and closer, that, that pressure becomes greater and greater, and I, I don't ease into these mornings a lot of times. They, they come at me, and, and the Lord's revealing things to me, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased at what He's given me, but... Um, it's one thing that was impressed upon me as, as I got closer to studying this is, is as, as I said when I talked about the, um, the fear of the Lord, it's our honor to, to give God glory when we realize who He is. When we look at Him, it's our honor, it's our privilege to give Him glory. Um, and it's okay, I think, if a world doesn't understand. If, if a world was totally on board there wouldn't be anybody for us to give our faith away to. And so, as we look at Ezekiel, that's what God's commissioned him to do, but not to the outside world specifically, to his own people. To his own people. Sometimes, and I don't know if we'll get to this today, but I want us to, look, I want us to get a mental picture, pretending I'm Ezekiel. Here I am in Babylon, or actually about 100 miles south. He's in, he's in the land of the Chaldeans, really, by the river Kabar. And so there's a, a smithing operation, if you will, or an artisan operation. There's a lot of things that are built and handled there for the Babylonians, 
Very smart people, the Babylonians. And so he's there. He's cast out. And sometimes he makes his projections and his prophecies to the people right there. But sometimes he's looking back to Jerusalem and he's telling those people exactly what God is going to do. So um, before we start, let's take just a moment uh, to go into prayer. And uh, it's, um, it's our privilege to be able to pray to a Father who hears us, to a God who lives in reality, uh, to a God that's real and is here and has proven himself throughout the millennia. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I'm grateful for those who are here, those who are coming. Lord, I just pray that today would be a day that, um, Lord, a day that changes the lives of your people forever. Lord, for some, they need to be lifted up. For some, they need to be established in joy. For some that will be here today, they need to be put through a crucible of pain, Lord, so that all of us, in the which way, whatever which way, Lord, you bring us to you, we're there. Father, whatever way you see fit to call us, whatever you want us to go through, Lord, as we look at this book, um, there are times that you call us to do things that are outside of um, what we would desire as we look at Ezekiel. And, and Lord, sometimes there are things that uh, make us very happy to do. Lord, as we desire to serve you, as we, as we desire to please you, Lord, in how we serve, um, may we just observe Ezekiel and we'll realize that he was willing to do what you wanted. He was willing to give all to please you, Father, to serve you. And I just pray that the understanding of what he did and, the, and, and also, Lord, how he glorified and honored you, I just pray that that would come through. Lord, we would be able to take a piece of that for ourselves and that we would, that we would choose and desire to worship you in the same way and, and do what is pleasing in your sight. Help it not to just be words and things we've heard in Christian circles all of our life. Lord, I just pray that it's, it's something that's really meaningful, meaningful to us, Lord. I pray that we would be able to do that with joy. Lord, for anyone here, who's very intellectual, who has an understanding of Jesus, who has an understanding of God. But Lord, apathy is there. Doubt is there. Living in a technologically advanced world that provides a lot of ease is before us. It doesn't make us feel a need for a Savior, a need for God. I just pray, Lord, if that person is here, that, that you would work in their life to help them understand the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ. Lord, I just thank you for this time we have. Make it a blessing. Lord, help me to get through what, we, what I've prepared. If you see fit, in Jesus' name, amen. Just a couple forward notes I have. So many times as modern-day Christians, when we are asked to turn to a certain book of the Bible that carries the name of an apostle or a minor prophet, we tend to get to that book as if somebody says, turn to 1 Thessalonians. We understand Thessalonians was written by Paul. He's the apostle that wrote it. But a lot of times we go into a book and we say, what, what does it have for me? What is God trying to say? Okay, I know we're going to look at Daniel, but we're looking at him on, on the view of just trying to get the message. We're not really looking at him. We're not looking at, at the person and his experiences all the time. And if we do, it's still kind of an outside looking in. We're not really trying to dive into what was he really going through. Sometimes it happens. wouldn't debate that. But many times as believers, if I say, turn to... Uh, Micah, well, we're not really thinking of that person. We're thinking of what that message is going to give us. 
And so, um, today we want to look at Ezekiel as a person and his uniqueness in Scripture and history. This inspired book is, uh, is incredibly rich, and it offers believers so much. Um, I would love to cover all 48 chapters today, but as was evidence a few Sundays ago, as I had three chapters in Genesis, and I got to three-quarters of my notes, um, 48 chapters in Ezekiel is not going to happen. I'll, I'll do my best to cover what I've prepared. Um, but I, will, I definitely will try to stay true to, the, to our uh, commission of looking at the person in the Old Testament. I believe that's what I was tasked to do, was to look at the person in the Old Testament. And that's what we want to do. I don't want to really just go into Ezekiel and say, it means this, it means that, and here's what's going on. I really want to try, if I can, to look at Jeremiah. Or excuse me, to, crossing Jeremiah to Ezekiel, to look at Ezekiel. With that being said, I think one of the confidences that we can have in God's Word is that the historicity of the Bible is, is accurate. The historicity of the Bible is, 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 is as deep as it needs to be, and sometimes deeper. And I love when secular scholars, mainly those on a channel I used to love, but it's really kind of frustrating to watch now, but the History Channel, you know, you have so many people that would say, well, the, the biblical account of this is wrong, and, and it, was, it was basically what was happening in a closed circle, and they didn't get the whole concept of what was going on at the time, and I always loved like five or six years later, well, the biblical account actually was true, and we know now, and it seems like the Bible continually gets its chance to be proven. As believers, we look at the Bible, and, and if you love history, if you enjoy history, you can really dive into this, and it's such a pleasure to go in, and you start to see that that old adage, history is his story. And you look at how he took the prophets from from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah, and, you, and he worked all that section of history through at a really critical time, the time of Babylon. And people say, ah, that's, you know, it's 2,700 years ago, it's Babylon, who cares? Well, the world cares, because most of the major cults that are purported today and are out there are somehow connected and touched to Babylon, that empire of old, that empire that set desire to set itself up against the things of God, that empire that, that basically holds a lot of sway in today's society, not only for their engineering, not only for what they did and their warfare, but also really for their cultic beliefs, the way that they structured their thoughts around who, who the gods were. The Babylonians really stemming from Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz. Tammuz, the son of Semiramis, the godson, and many of the Israelites that were forced, but also glad to worship them, him in their own temple. And that's going to take us to the point in the, in the story where we're at, where God is basically fed up with it. And I got to say, as a believer, I like God's kind of, I like his idea of fed up. He gave them centuries to repent. He gave them centuries to turn around, to change their ways and to come seek his face. And they chose to just be a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. He says it clearly in the chapters we're going to get to, chapters 2 and 3. When I look at that as a believer, though, I'm so thankful that God is long-suffering, that he is forbearing of me. Uh, in my inadequacies as a believer many times, and also in my stubborn sinfulness, I'm glad that he forbears. Um, as we look at um, the Israelites in the land of Jerusalem, 
continuing to go on worshiping their idols and false gods, we get to the point where God is finally leaving the temple, and that's where we're going to try to connect the dots here. So to not repeat myself, I want to go into a little bit of the history of what's going on what and what time frame Ezekiel fits into. And I'm just going to make it some quick bullet points and list off the, the, the dates as I, as I uh, come across certain, certain events that happen. Nebuchadnezzar invades Jerusalem and takes many. And so in typical Babylonian fashion, they were very brilliant. They take uh, mainly the monarchy and the best and the most brightest. The best and the brightest that, that is offered of a certain people. Whether it was the Chaldeans, whether it was the Assyrians, it didn't matter who it was. They would go ahead and they would conquer them. They were a warring, um, they were a warring people. And they would conquer them and they were very, very violent so that the people would also have submission built in to their way of thinking. They would come in and they would conquer, and they'd conquer pretty completely. And then they would go ahead and extract the best that that society had to offer. And then they would put them in the king's service, or they would put them, in the case of the artisans, the smiths, and the, uh, and the uh, craftsmen, they would put them in a little bit distant place so that if there was a rebellion, it wouldn't be right at the heart of the land. So as we look at where Ezekiel's at, he's about a little, little less than 100 miles away from the, from the city of Babylonia, and it's perfect, you know, 100 miles is really nothing for the caravans going back and forth and the tradesmen to take the goods that, that the people would produce there by the river Kedar and bring them back to Babylonia. But if there's an insurrection, if there's a rising up, Nebuchadnezzar's quick. He can go ahead and he can assemble his armies. He can say, take a garrison out and, and quash this right now. You also have to keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar has a garrison of trained killers, soldiers, they know exactly how to do death, just like the Romans did. If you are going to send them out, you don't need major forces like you would to fight the pharaoh in Egypt or the king of Tyre. You don't need all of that effort because a lot of these people, craftsmen and artisans, they may make some good swords. They may make some good um, pikes. There's some things that they do really well, but a lot of them are women and children, so they're not, they're not ready to fight at the drop of a hat. They would really have to plan their insurrection and their rebellion carefully. Nebuchadnezzar and his father were very, very smart in the process of how they set up the kingdom of Babylon. Uh, it also made them really arrogant. And we will not cover Nebuchadnezzar's conversion here at all, but we'll just say that it does get better for him, at least as I see it. I think God's word shows it to be. At any rate, he, he, uh, he, he takes the best and the brightest. He invades Jerusalem. It's interesting to note, Daniel is one of the captives in Invasion 1. Uh, this is around 605 B.C., don't forget it's B.C., so as the number gets shorter, um, things get newer. Uh, so if you were born in 605, you are older than a person born in 595. I guess everybody understands that, but I just wanted to make sure we're on the same page. Daniel's captured around 605. He's about six years older than Ezekiel. I just wanted to put that in there, roughly. Fast forward to 601 B.C., and Babylon is once again fighting for supremacy over Egypt. Egypt is finally driven out of Asia. And of course, if we look at Asia, we're not talking China, Japan, South Korea, North Korea. We're talking uh, technically Asia being Turkey in that area, in the Mediterranean and Middle East area. So uh, they were able to uh, have dominance over the king of Egypt and drive him out, the pharaoh of Egypt, and drive him out of Asia that Middle Eastern area, but it came at a heavy cost. Babylon, the Babylonian army is severely weakened. Jehoiakim is king of Israel 
at the time. And there are other kings, the king of uh, the Chaldeans, the Assyrians, go on, so on and so forth. And research this time frame in history. This is really interesting because there's a lot of bad characters on the stage at this time. And, uh, you know, we look at Nineveh. That's Assyria. We're looking at, we're looking at things that were set up by, uh, by people of old shortly after the flood. So um, the long and short of it is, and, and I only to, I wondered why they didn't attack Nebuchadnezzar right then and there. Nebuchadnezzar is so weakened at that point. Are, they, are the Babylonians really that good? That all these groups that war and faction say, I'm not even going to try it then. What they choose to do is withhold their tribute. So all these kings that are kings under Nebuchadnezzar, they, they look and decide to say, you know what, they probably have rebuilding, they probably need about six months to seven months of rebuilding time. They're that beaten. If we withhold our tribute and take money away from their coffers, it might take them five to six years. I don't know if they thought that specifically, but if they did, they were they were hoping that, they would be a lot stronger too. So by the time Nebuchadnezzar rolled back through to go ahead and this, um, uh, to, to bring his dominance over them, they'd be like, no, we can throw out these bonds. We don't have to be um, subservient to this king. It didn't work out that way. Nebuchadnezzar was a really good, really a good general in a lot of ways, but he was a good king and he got his army up on their feet in a year. Um, I put a little side note, side note in here about Jehoiakim. He sees a weakened Nebuchadnezzar return to Babylon. He takes the opportunity to rebel. I, I put tough guy right next to there. It's such a weak move. You know, did he really rebel? No, he didn't usurp. He didn't do anything. He just talked a good game and they held their, withheld their money. Um, but Jehoiakim wasn't the only one. Other kings did it as well. The long and short of it is Nebuchadnezzar takes about one year to rebuild his army completely. And that's roughly 600 B.C. In 599 B.C., Judah is being invaded by various groups from the east. As we mentioned, uh, the uh, Ammonites, um, the Chaldeans, the Syrians in part. And, and they're doing that because Israel is a land that has more than they have. It's, it's a land rich in mineral. It's a land rich with uh, the Israeli people were very sharp craftsmen and artisans. They made things. They used things. They were... They were better thinkers than a lot of their contemporaries. A lot of the people around them, they were just better thinkers. They were better builders than a lot of them. And, and people desired that area of the land of Canaan. They wanted what Israel had. So Nebuchadnezzar's out of the scene rebuilding. And a lot of these invaders are coming around and they're, they're really starting to take a shot at Israel. Uh, we see that at the end of 599 B.C., roughly Nebuchadnezzar and his armies are healed up and they're on the march to collect their back due tribute. So 598 B.C., Jehoiakim has just been killed likely by eastern raiders or mercenaries. We don't know, but it would probably come from any one of those countries. And his son Jehoiachin, there's a lot of different ways to say it. I'll keep it separate, becomes king. He's a short-lived king. Here we go. We get to 597 B.C. and Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar invades in early March and seizes Jerusalem, part two. He removes Jehoiachin as king and installs Zedekiah from the line of Josiah. In April, Nebuchadnezzar goes back to Babylon with 10,000 more captives, of which Ezekiel is one of them. Ezekiel is 25 years old. So who can tell me what Ezekiel was studying to do, what he was studying to be? What did he want to be more than anything in the whole wide world? He wanted to be a priest, a priest of the Lord in Israel. It's a big deal to be a priest. You had clout. You wore different clothes. You were set up to make sacrifices. It would, it would almost be like 
you know, be like being a doctor today. It'd be like being part of the clergy, heaven's favorite word. <laughs> you wear different clothes. You get a lot of respect, like being a high-end engineer. <clears throat> Whatever profession in today's world you could think of that, that, has, that has some uh, weight behind it. That's what a priest would have been in Israel. And he's excited about it. He's been looking forward to it. He's a priest in training. And so he's 25 years old, and all of a sudden his life's turned upside down. Who was Ezekiel? Well, he was a son of Israel. He was, uh, he was the personal son of Bootsy. We don't get a lot of information on his parents. Obviously, they had put him in the right places. He had went to the right schools. He was, he was part of a, I wouldn't say of any sect, but he was just part of what was possible, what was expected potentially with certain people who had an understanding of the scripture, certain people who may have had some clout. Uh, Bootsy, his father, may have had that. What was his place in Israel? As I mentioned, it was um, to be a priest in training and um, likely a smith of some sort. You know, and, and, and when I mean a smith, I don't mean part of my wife's family. I mean, he could have been a craftsman. He could have been a blacksmith. He could have made horseshoes. He could have, he could have been an artisan. He could have made fine art. There's many things he could have done to provide an income for himself, but he probably had a dual role. He probably was one of those priests going to the seminary, so to speak, and having a job on the side. Uh, because industry was part of the Israel culture, as it is today. Let's look at it. Israeli people have done in the Middle East, by the hand of God, ultimately in his overseeing, what nobody else has done. I remember being in Israel right before they would tell us we had to suspend our joy of being in the Middle East and go to some place I'd rather not be that was in the Gulf of Hormuz and all these other places. And you would literally see, as you would leave Israel, the green would go away. The water, the aqueducts, the supply, the, the logistics of everything that they put together, you just see it go away. Those people are good thinkers. They really know how to be industrious. And, and I think the same goes, I think that goes all the way back to God's command to if you don't work, you don't eat. And they, they had that implanted in them to be, to be active. So I don't think Ezekiel's just a priest in training and living off the fat of somebody else's offering. I think he's, he's, he's industrious. What was he doing in the place of his captivity? I struggled with this one. I wanted to say he was working because he was captured with people who could do the Babylonian Empire some good. If you didn't do the Babylonian Empire any good, what they, what they tell in Jeremiah's time, what they say? Just keep him behind just keep them behind. You keep these, we'll give you a fake king to watch over them, and uh, you can just uh, play armchair quarterback to what's going on. But they don't want them. They figure they're easy enough to conquer if they get out of hand, but they're not going to do our empire any good. I struggled with this because I wanted to say, oh, he was ministering and he was working. I don't know. I need some help on that one. What do you think he was doing when he got to the area of Kabar? And uh, what's your thoughts? on that anybody we're going to take just a quick break and I want to go ahead and uh, discuss that if anybody has an idea what he was doing in the place of his captivity I think he was ministering to the people with the prophetic gift that he had that he was known among the people as a prophet and that the prophets were listened to uh, for information and as a result of that uh, he'd have had a place of interest and of 
people would pay attention to him to get the word of the Lord from him. Now, whether they accepted what he said, that's a different ballgame. But still, uh, Ezekiel was known, and often uh, the elders would come around him and listen to him as he would give these prophecies. So I think that that was something that he was doing, giving the word of the Lord to the people for their education during that time while they were there in Babylon. I appreciate that answer. Um, I should have defined the question a little bit more, even though that's 100% accurate. Uh, how old did you have to be to be a priest? He had to be 30. He was taken away. He got there when he was 25. Uh, and, and to define that a little bit more clearly, because God changed his thinking of what he would be to what he was going to be at 30. What do we think he might have been doing for from 25 to 30. That's, I, and I should have defined that a little bit better. But that's an, uh, Brother Phil gave an exact answer. Um, and we'll see that a prophet was not always well respected, uh, especially Ezekiel. But he was listened to. And God made sure people knew he was a prophet. Any thoughts on that five-year period? Probably still planning to be a priest. So it doesn't have to be that deep. I just wondered if there's any thoughts, because it is, it is interesting. Yeah, Jack. There, the hand of the Lord was on him, so I mean, he was definitely known to be able to minister to others. The hand of the Lord was on him, so he would have, he would have been someone he went to, to talk to regarding any issues that you might be having, be it spiritually, uh, even maybe, maybe a little bit of the law and things of that nature. He would have been someone who would be ministering to others. That's a good point. Maybe spiritually, definitely the law. And he would have been versed in that because he probably started this journey, excuse me, journey to being a priest at what age? 13, 14? Somewhere around there? He probably had some educational spiritualness about him. Maybe it was rare where he was at, so he became their best, even though he wasn't official. So we, we, can, yeah, we can all concur on that. I think that Ezekiel was somebody who, who God was using in the new place that they were at. As he told Jeremiah, you know, as the people are like, what do we do? How can we be Jewish? How can we be Jewish here in Babylon? God said, have kids, marry, continue on. And so, uh, you know, not with the Babylon, Babylonians. It would have been inconceivable for a, a Jew to do something like that. But to be connected in, to community and to live. As long as you wake, as long as you wake up, you're going to live. Live. And so Ezekiel's doing his part in a strange place, just like Daniel, to go ahead and live and serve God. Um, you know, I, I look at um, why God, why, the question, one of the questions that came up as I was looking at Ezekiel, why did God choose Ezekiel to be his prophet? Well, we look at his character and his uprightness. I think those were important qualities why God chose Ezekiel to go ahead and to be his prophet. But it came to me that I think the real reason that God chose Ezekiel, and I'll say it a little different way as we move on, but the kind way to say it is he was willing to surrender all. He was willing to go ahead and give what he had and who he'd become to God in his service. Ezekiel's name means God will strengthen, or someone who is strong for God. Someone who is stalwart. We don't hear those words a lot anymore. But someone who is, who is set forward to endure, to be strong for God, who God builds up from the inside. 
I also think the other reason God chose Ezekiel, we're not, unfortunately we're not going to get to this, but God knew what Ezekiel's story was going to look like. From desiring to be a priest and having that taken at the age he's supposed to be a priest, he becomes a prophet. Were prophets well respected in Israel all the time? Sometimes, but they also had a lot of ugly things to do that people hated them for. Uh, you know, the prophet in Israel was the messenger, and many times they liked to shoot the messenger. And so God knew Ezekiel's story from being a prophet and moving forward in a, in a land of captivity to having a wife he loved, to losing that wife, to God saying, don't shed one tear for her. Don't mourn. I'm making it. I'm making it so the people of Israel will look at you and see the symbology of what I'm trying to tell you. Ezekiel, tie yourself up and lie on your side for 380 days. What's this all about? You don't, it doesn't matter. Really, Ezekiel was make, willing to make himself a fool for God. It's going to get better and better as our story goes on. Right now we're looking at it and some people are saying to themselves, why does it matter? Why does, why does all this stuff matter? Why does Ezekiel matter? It's God reaching in down to a people who we're no better than. We have sin in our lives. We have idols before us many times. We have problems. We have issues in family. We have issues in, in, with, with others around us. And God's saying, I want you to be changed and worship me. You know, when somebody says to me, do you have an idol in your life? I like to, as a believer, say, absolutely, I have no idols in my life. And then I really take a close examination and say, wow. What do I put over God? What do I put next to God? And I wouldn't make a judgment on you, but I'm not the only human in here. I think that we all have those issues where, where God is calling to us repeatedly, saying, make me first. Ezekiel was willing to make God first. And you say, oh, what a superhuman he was. Well, let's go ahead and realize that we will not defend to the death something we don't believe in. You can't give something you don't have. And Ezekiel didn't have everything he needed to be what God wanted him to be just yet. We're going to get to that. I promise we've got some time to do it, and I better hurry up. But God knew Ezekiel's story, and he was going to show Israel its path by observing Ezekiel. So when you look at Israel's story, just kind of look at what God's putting Ezekiel through, or what was going to happen to Ezekiel. You watch his life, you're going to also be able to watch something symbolic of what Israel's going to go through. Chapter 1, Ezekiel's contact and his commission. So, Ezekiel is on the bank of the river Kabar with others in captivity, and the word of the Lord came to him. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. And I thought that's all I needed to read of chapter 1, and it's all I will because it's all I prepared time for. But boy, I really kind of missed the boat. We're going to look at Ezekiel's commission, But we're going to kind of skip forward and we're going to wonder why he's so amazed. And it's what happens in chapter one when God shows him himself. And I'm going to if if I can't get past this, it's going to be well worth it because this is going to talk about the glory of God. And this is going to talk about the holiness of God. And if we can take that in this Sunday school away and recognize that God is holy, that God's ways are so far above our ways. No, I'm not duped. I'm not brainwashed. I've been in the Christian circles my whole life, but I've seen Jesus Christ for myself, and Ezekiel sees God for himself. And when you see God for himself, you don't care how stupid you look. 
you know that God's got a plan and he's going to move you forward to, to complete his plan. You feel confident in playing the fool for God. So that's what we're going to look at here. And I love this first passage. It just gives us a background. And then it tells us something that happens in the book of Ezekiel that's going to carry all the way throughout. And then if I ever talk on the rest of this book again, we'll cover the amount of times that God says something in repetition to get it across to us. We'll, counter, we'll cover the amount of times where Ezekiel says something like, Worthy is the name of the Lord, over and over and over. So we get it in our mind and who we are, what really is trying to happen when it comes to the God of glory. Now it came to pass in the third, 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kabar, that the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. In the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Butzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Kabar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon him in a place he wasn't supposed to be with people he didn't care about away from what was good and Jewish what was good and Israeli he was called wait a minute God I'm 30 years old I want to be a priest I want to do the sacrifice just right I want to be in the nice clothes I want to be well respected no son I want you to be a prophet here's your commission if it was me and God started to reveal to me the things I would have to do, I'd be like, Are you, you know, I'd be like Isaiah, Isaiah. Okay, how long do I have to do it for? I don't want to do it that long. Ezekiel is committed and sold out. He makes that transition. He knows he's, he's going to do it. But here's the interesting thing. And I'm going to summarize chapter 1 so we can read chapters 2 and 3. I hate that I chose to do that because I really should have shared with you the glory of God in this. You can read it for yourself. Read it slow. There's a term in the military that says fire for effect. It means do it purposefully. Get it on target. When you read this, don't just zip through it. Read it for effect. Get in there and actually, if you have to read it twice or read it slow, read it. I had trouble sleeping last night a little bit because I started to think about the wheels. And I'd love to go into all this stuff that he's in there. And We know it's some kind of technology that we don't possess. But the whole point of it is to really say, look how grand and glorious God is. God's not trying to show off. It's just who he is. His ways are above our ways. So the word, the two things I wanted, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel, the priest. The last part of that verse, the hand of the Lord was there upon him. God inserts himself into humanity once again. We look at this, this time where the heavens are open. The atmosphere is moved. God meets Ezekiel. And then you, Ezekiel basically says he sees these creatures. They have four heads, bull, eagle, lion, man. They have no neck. They don't move. They have wings and hands under the wings and wings that cover the body and wings that all touch. They're set upon wheels, and their mind and their consciousness and their eyes are in the wheels, multiple wheels that they have. And as the Spirit of the Lord gets ready to move, they move with Him. They move in front of Him. They're guardians. Think of, think of the guys. Everybody's like, what do you watch, Matt? Think of the guys that are the bouncers going at the UFC fighters. Nobody touches them, guys. That is the cherubim. The seraphim in heaven. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. holy. That's they say it day and night, and they can't say it enough. And when we're there, we'll feel inadequate when we can't say it enough. 
But the cherubim is protection, the protectors of God's holiness. That's how important God's holiness is. He has set up creatures to protect it. And we say an eagle, a bull. Why not just a man? God's creative. You know, we look at the angels and we all think of them as, as, as male beings that would move to and fro that look all human. Nobody says they have to look human. We know in the Word of God that He said that there are many types and they look at it. So He chooses what He chooses to use. Their heads do not move. They move in direction, in tandem, in unison. They're locked together. The wheels are their eyes and the consciousness of the being. I've heard it said it would be as if Ezekiel came back. He's just given us the best with what he understands since he doesn't know exactly what it is. But it would be the same as if he came back and Brother Phil is in a Cadillac, a 69 Eldorado. He sees, he would say, and there was a beast and the man's consciousness was in it that controlled the beast. So he's doing the best he can with what he has. I think he describes it pretty accurately. I don't think it's so high-tech that it's a helicopter or something crazy like that. He just doesn't understand. I really think that it is what it is, and we have to interpret the best we can. But there's technology there that's joined to the earth and joined to heaven. We don't get it all. But the whole point of chapter 1 is not specifically that I can go ahead and draw out exactly what Ezekiel's looking at and dealing with. The whole point of it is that he sees the glory of God. God is, calling, God is saying, if you don't believe in me, you can't serve me. You can't give what you don't have. You can't be inspired to go through the stuff I'm going to put you through if you don't see me. If you can't witness and view my holiness, then you're going to miss the boat and you're going to quickly be crumbled when people go ahead and, and work against you. So, um, we, look, we see in chapter 1 that God is giving Ezekiel something that's going to help him last for 33 chapters. Sounds like a short time. That's a long time. For 33 chapters, God's going to rejuvenate him and give him a bolster him back up again because guess what? Servants of God, people of God get tired. They're human. We're human. The number one thing I personally loathe in my own life It's not that I don't have answers, and it's not that I'm not given answers in God's Word, and it's not that I can't find answers. It's that sometimes I'm apathetic. Sometimes I don't care. Sometimes I don't know enough about God's greatness to stay engaged. And when I'm like that, sometimes I wonder, what am I a part of? Is what I'm believing real? Is what I'm understanding, is it the right thing? Going through this section last night, uh, please forgive me because there's more to cover, but I said if I didn't get past the holiness of God, I would be okay with it. A shot across my bow last night as I was taking in the holiness of God and how how real God is. something came in front of me about a person I had had some respect for who is no longer a Christian. So some of us know the name Josh Harris. I pray that you would pray for him. He wrote, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And any time that you hear that a believer in Christ or somebody who had professed belief in Christ who's tasted of the goodness of the Lord says, I'm not a Christian anymore. 
I think as a believer who has been through some stuff in your life or who's experienced some setbacks or some, some issues, I think you say, why would you give up? Why would you, why would you concede that? And I'd and I really like to just say, if you know of him, if you've been blessed by some of his work, pray for him. But as I read this, I wondered, did he really understand the glory of God? Did he really see that the work he'd been called to was because God has shown him something that's so grand, something so big, something so holy that he can't attain to on earth? I don't know, but I know that Ezekiel was locked in and committed after he'd seen this. And how do we know we could go over to chapter 2 or 3? I'm missing it. He sat seven days stunned at the river with the people around him. And people say, oh, he really contemplated that. And then he got up and had a mango. And then he came, but no. I think he fasted for seven days unintentionally. I think periodically he may have, why was he at the river Kabar? God knew if he wasn't, he probably would have died of thirst. I think he had the chance to go ahead and be stunned and be coherent enough just in his in his, you know, in his out of mind state or in his stunned state to reach down, stunned state to reach down and get some water. God made an impact on Ezekiel. When we're talking about the man, I, th- I hope that we've done it justice to see where he came from, the time in which he lived, the people that he went to, how out of out of his normal realm he was, and how he chose to serve God. I pray that this book, this portion of just reading this small portion of the first chapter, I wish I would have got through two and three, but I pray that uh, it's encouraged you as a believer to really observe the glory of God and recognize that can sustain us for a long time. It's not meant to be a push and then we coast away. It's meant to be a a propulsion. It's meant for us to continue to go back to God's word and get more and more and more and stay with him. If you're an unbeliever here, if you're still questioning those things in the Bible, I think the historicity of the Bible explains the reality of God so well. I love history. I enjoy everything that it, uh, that it offers. It, it, if, if we really understand history, we don't repeat bad mistakes. It's funny how we don't appreciate history enough. We make the same mistakes that we see brothers and sisters made in the Bible. As nations, we see the foolish things that were done and repeated over and over. God weaves himself so perfectly through his book that it's not just about the history. It's about him him continuing in all of his prophets to say, uh, to, to have them say one coherent, consistent message, Jesus Christ. In all of the minor prophets, you get that weaving of a Savior to come. If we got to the end of Ezekiel, we'd see God's relent. We would see his desire to draw back his people. I hope that you guys really just get a little flavor for Ezekiel and who he was and what he was willing to do for the cause of Christ. I pray that uh, you actually read those first three chapters, stay in them for a while as God's love letter through the book of Ezekiel uh, to his people, but also to us. I hope I can come back to Ezekiel. I really want to cover the whole book. I'd love to be one of them guys who can do it in an hour, but alas, I am not. So uh, let's pray and close. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the blessing of great weather. It was nice to come out. It was brisk, low heat. Lord, we thank you for the little things that you do for us. 
Lord, we thank you for the big things that you do for us, Lord. And the biggest of all, that you gave us eternal life and the opportunity for salvation through your Son. Lord, I, I, I miss so many times what, what Jesus tries to tell me, what you try to tell me, Father. Help me be more alert to your, your glory and your holiness. Help me to be more in awe of that, Lord, so that I can serve you, and so that I'd be willing to go ahead and do what you need me to do, what you would ask me to do, Lord, and I would do it gladly for you. Lord, I pray you'll bless this time in uh, communion and this time today in study at the Family Bible Hour in Jesus' name. Amen.